3: Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities.
1: Well, this will be an interesting episode because we're recording it at, uh, what time is it now? 11.30 Wednesday in Orlando with Hurricane Ian bearing down on us. Um, it hasn't gotten bad yet. I know by the time you guys are listening to this, it'll be the first of the week. It isn't so bad right now, but they keep changing the forecast like every 10 minutes. It's uh, it's upgraded, it's downgraded. Right now, they're saying we're probably going to get about 50 mile per hour winds in the next uh, four or five hours.
2: If I learned anything growing up in Maine with snowstorms, week after week, month after month, year after year, Uh, you cannot trust a forecast. Mm -mm. And so I've just chosen not to look at it. It's like gas prices. I'm not going to do anything about it. So I'm just going to drink my bottled water and count my batteries.
1: You know, my mom used to always say that. Yeah. uh, Don't drink your bottled water before you count all your batteries. (laughs) Then she would put bedpans on her feet and climb down the hallway. No, she didn't. That was just for comedic purposes. Anyway, it's a pretty spooky atmosphere here.
2: Yeah, it's a little unsettling. I hope we get through the recording.
1: Here we go. From his wallet drew a human hand, shriveled and dry and black, and fitting as he spake, a taper in his hold. Pursued, a murderer on the stake had died. I drove the vulture from his limbs, and lopped the hand that did the murder, and drew it up the tendon strings to close its grasp. And in the sun and wind parched it, nine weeks exposed, the taper, but not here the place to impart, nor hast thou undergone the rites that fit thee to partake the mystery. Look, it burns clear, but with the air around, its deadness ingredients mingle deathliness." That is from uh, William Henderson's folklore of the northern counties of England. And he is describing the Hand of Glory.
2: The Hand of Glory. Gosh, that sounds familiar.
1: You've read Harry Potter, right? I have. Well, that's undoubtedly where you recognize it from. If oh. you're familiar with the Hand of Glory, chances are you, uh, you heard about it in the writings of J.K. Rawlings. But what is it really... According to Wikipedia, it's a very re- uh, real thing. A hand of glory is the dried and pickled hand of a hanged man, often specified as being the left hand because <laughs> the left hand is considered sinister. Right. Or if the person was hanged for murder, it was you, the hand used was the hand, quote, that did the deed. History states it had four basic powers. First and foremost... The hand would put to sleep anyone that was awake in the house and render them in a coma-like state until the flames were extinguished. Mm,
2: no, nope. I figured out what it reminds me of. What? You remember that movie Hot Rod? There was a a, a punch that could make someone poop themselves, and that's what it makes me think of. <laughs> it was like a kung fu punch. That uh-huh. could,
1: okay. That's, yeah. what,
2: mm-hmm. that's what it makes me think of.
1: Second, the hand would give light to only the holder, casting all others into darkness, akin to the holder becoming invisible. Third, is that any lock could be opened in and around the vicinity where the hand was lit.
2: Oh, that's neat.
1: And finally, it is thought that the hand of glory could burn forever without perishing. Old European beliefs attribute great powers to the hand of glory, but you had to combine it with a candle made from the fat of the corpse that you lopped the hand off of.
2: Oh, okay. It's very specific. And
1: the person had to have died at the gallows. The candle so made, lighted, and placed as if like it was a candlestick in the hand uh, would cause all of those things that I mentioned before to, uh, to happen. It had mystical powers. Back in the 18th century, there was a grimoire or a small textbook of natural and Kabbalistic magic. It was called La Petite Albert. It was distributed to small towns by peddlers. They would carry it around in their, like, saddlebags and, and pass them out. Saddlebags. It was, uh, at the time, considered a phenomenal publishing success. And even though it had a reputation of being associated with the dark arts, okay, people would line up for it. In La Petite Albert, there are many spells and incantations. It, kind of like, I, I think of it as kind of like Poor Richard's Almanac for devil worshipers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Here are petite Albert's more detailed instructions for creating a hand of glory. Here's the recipe. Get a, get a notepad. Write this down. Halloween's coming.
2: I've got it in my saddlebag.
1: Take the right or left hand of a felon who is hanging from a giblet beside a highway. Wrap it in part of a funeral pall.
2: Can just anyone do this? Yeah. Anyone can just stop yeah. by and snag a criminal sure. from the side of the road and if,
1: if you have the, dismember
2: uh, their body? In
1: those days, yeah, you could just go and, and do that.
2: Just take someone's body? Yep. All right.
1: Well, if it was a criminal,
2: you right. could. Right.
1: People actually fought over the blood of a decapitated criminal because it was considered medicinal. <sighs> they would drink the blood of a dead man. Oh, man. Anyway... You take the hand, you wrap it in a funeral pall and squeeze it well. Then put it in an earthenware vessel.
2: It's kind of like when Julia Child gets the moisture out of shredded potatoes
1: with cheesecloth. Yeah. Cheese. <laughs> Very similar. You put it in an earthenware vessel with uh
2: oregano and thyme, <laughs> well,
1: salt and long peppers and you would have to powder this all, uh, you leave it in the vessel for a fortnight and then take it out and expose it to full sunlight during the quote dog days until it becomes quite dry. If the sun is not strong enough, put it in an oven with fern and vermain. Next, make a kind of candle from the fat of the felon. Mix it with sesame, pony, and virgin wax. You then take the candle and you put it in the uh, Hand of Glory. I'm not really sure what virgin wax is. Uh, I made the mistake of Googling it. It was no help
2: at all. That sounds like a mistake.
1: Mostly what I got was instructions on how to give a Brazilian to a person who's never had sex, uh, mixed in with photos of Steve Carell getting his chest waxed in the movie 40-Year-Old Virgin.
2: Ah! Kelly Clarkson.
1: Neither of these were helpful. No. There are many different recipes. They're all kind of similar. Another one from a 16th century text says, uh, It's the hand of a man who has been hung and is prepared in the following manner. Wrap it in a piece of winding sheet, drawing it tight so as to squeeze out what little blood may retain, uh, remain. Okay. Then place it in an earthenware vessel with saltpeter, salt, Peter, salt. And long pepper, all carefully and thoroughly powdered. Let it remain a fortnight in this pickle till it is well dried. Then expose the hand in the dog days till it is completely parched. <laughs> or, if the sun be not powerful enough, dry it in an oven heated with uh, ferns and vermaine. Next, you make the candle out of the fat of the, of the uh, hung man and uh, mix in that virgin wax, also sesame. <laughs> and then deep fry it. <laughs>
2: The hung man and the virgin mm-hmm.
1: wax. we virgin wax.
2: <sighs>
1: so the old European beliefs regarding the hand of glory and its reported powers were used mostly by thieves. Oh. Because the hand of glory would... Because
2: the unlocking doors. It would
1: unlock doors and it would render anybody in the house motionless. It's said that the hand of glory was used mostly by thieves for this purpose. They believed... It would allow them to get inside and then freeze anybody in their tracks that was inside the house. Right. The hand itself was often used as a candle. And if you look at like renderings of these uh, hands of glory, sometimes you see the hand and each fingertip is lit.
2: Yes. Okay. I've seen that depicted in.
1: Kind of like a grisly candelabra. Others, it would have the hand would be clenched and the candle is stuck between the uh, middle and ring finger. Oh, it like held. I do
2: with my keys. Like you
1: do with your keys. Right. Exactly.
2: I kind of like the idea of a candelabra that looks like a creepy dead hand. You
1: can buy them. You can buy candles that look like the hand of glory. Oh, wow. Well. It's not made with, you know, virgin wax or the corpse of a dead man. Googling I don't it. think. If a finger would not catch fire, it indicated that either someone in the home was awake or or that there were less than 5 people in the house many thieves misjudged the number of people in the house and often this was their it led to their downfall because of the way the candle would or would not light mm-hmm. it said the flame of the hand of glory could only be extinguished with milk and that any other liquid would just embolden its blaze it's also said that uh, and, and not all of the, the recipes call for this but uh, when making the uh, candle to use hair from the dead person as its wick
2: oh that's gonna smell terrible
1: oh my god can you imagine no the other day i turned the air fryer on and there was like pizza cheese that had dripped down to the bottom and i thought that smell was gonna drive me out of the house I imagine it's a lot like that. There are several hands of glory on display in museums around Europe, oh. most notably at the Whitby Museum. And how it got there was a little strange. There was an old cottage in Danby, England, and it had been owned for decades by a man who had a bit of a sketchy reputation. Many people thought that he was practicing witchcraft. After he died, Dr. J.E. Chalmers who was an antiquarian from Castleton, bought the cottage. When he was moving in, he made a very strange and fascinating discovery. He found the right hand of a dead man just kind of nailed over the door. Just the thing to brighten up your den.
2: Like a horseshoe.
1: Now, Dr. Chalmers was very interested in history and these sorts of things, and so he kept the hand until he was quite old. It was said that he considered burying it in a churchyard in Danby at one point, but before he died, he actually passed it on to a local mason named Joseph Ford. And it was Mr. Ford who gave the hand of glory to the Whitney Museum in 1935. That's where it is till this day. You can still see it. But they don't just turn up in museums. Other findings include a mummified hand in the Haunch of Venison Public House in Wiltshire. Haunch of Venison. Um, Staff at the pub recount a tale where uh, a gambler was caught cheating by a local butcher, which you should never cheat a local butcher when playing cards. Apparently, he promptly chopped the guy's hand off and threw it in the fireplace. Oh!
2: Um,
1: The severed hand was found during renovations in 1911 and uh, was displayed in a glass case along with a deck of cards from the 18th century. The haunt of venison's history spans back about 700 years. Okay, first recorded around uh, 1320. Many people have reported paranormal activity in this three-story pub, including the owners themselves, who, uh, right on the pub's website, talk about the weird things that they have uh, they've witnessed, like seeing the spirit of a man in a brown shirt with uh, suspenders watching them sleep.
2: Oh, my goodness. Or the urge to name your business the haunch of venison.
1: Yeah, I think that goes back to the earliest days. (laughs) I love that kind of history. Haunch of venison pub. Well, since 1911, the severed hand, which clutches a pack of 18th century playing cards uh, and is rumored to be cursed, has been on display in a locked glass case or a cage-like thing. However, it was stolen From the pub in 2010, barman David Proger appealed for its return soon after it was stolen. He said, quote, it's kept in a locked cage. So whoever took it must have come prepared to unscrew the locks. Mm. We've got a big group of school children waiting to see it, and they're going to be very disappointed.
2: Maybe they just used a hand of glory.
1: To steal the hand of glory. Right. They have replaced it with a facsimile, but no one knows where the hand is to this day. My information came from Wikipedia, La Petite Albert, The Guardian, The Whitby Guide, and William Henderson's Folklore of the Northern Counties of England. So hopefully... I was clear enough in the uh, direction so that you can create your own hand of glory this Halloween season. All you need is uh, some virgin wax and a dead guy and a few herbs and spices.
2: Sure, of course.
1: And some cheesecloth. Don't forget that. (laughs) Bon appetit. (laughs) I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids.
3: that thing in the middle.
1: In October of 2013, a grieving Sarasota man was questioned by police after he was observed sprinkling the ashes of his deceased fiance at the lens crafters inside Westfield Southgate Mall. The man said that he was just spreading the ashes in places that had been very special to the dead woman. Hi Cat and Jethro, longtime listener. I think you were only on episode three when I found you, but recently I had what I think counts as my first box of oddities effect. I've been listening nonstop lately in an attempt to catch back up. And recently, I had you playing in my earbuds as I was walking into the grocery store. Cat was telling some true crime story. Well, I walked into the store and went to grab the shopping cart. And I swear, the second both of my hands touched the handle, Cat said. So anyway, they got his fingerprints off the shopping cart. <laughs> The other supermarket shoppers in my general vicinity probably saw me jerk both of my hands back from the cart as if it burned me, and then immediately look around with a panicked and guilty look on my face as if the (laughs) cops were after me.
3: I
2: love it.
1: He goes on to say, my father was recently in a motorcycle accident, and having you all to listen to while I've been staying by his bedside has been a great comfort to me. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Sincerely, Aaron." Thank you, Erin.
2: Emily sent us a message. Hey, so I was listening to someone mention on the box about ICD-10 codes, and I remember you talking about them before. Well, I am a medical coder, and when I was in school, I remember seeing the list of the top 16 most absurd (laughs) ICD-10 codes out there. And, of course, I've never forgotten it. This was 2015, so I'm sure there's a lot more now, but I thought y'all might get a kick out of this list. And remember... It had to have happened to come up with the code. I'd love to see if y'all could find any stories here. I do want to mention that subsequent encounters don't necessarily mean that the incident happened twice. It could mean the patient is still getting treatment for the initial injury. So that's good to note. Oh,
3: yeah. That, okay. you know,
2: maybe knitting accidents don't happen as often as they <laughs> seem to. They're just noted several times because the same person's coming in more than once.
1: Not a repeat knitting injury <laughs> offender. Brooke tagged us on Facebook. Thanks, Box of Oddities podcast. I'm sitting in the car. Coffee shop on my lunch at work and thought my Bluetooth headphones were connected, but no. And it's on full volume, and the first thing Jethro says is, yo baby, that ain't dick meat. <laughs> uh, you're welcome, Brooke. I'm sure you got the table at the coffee shop to yourself.
0: Wanna learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast.
3: If this podcast smells funny to you or shows small cracks around the edges, throw it out immediately. It may be past its freshness date. This is The Box of Oddities. All right, sweet girl. What you got for me?
2: In 1977, Arkansan Charles B. Pierce produced an R-rated horror film called The Town That Dreaded Sundown. It starred Academy Award-winning actor Ben Johnson, John Wells of Gilligan's Island, and Andrew Prine. The plot. A small community of Texarkana gets back to normal life after World War II, while a berserk killer terrorizes the border town. Though many laud this movie as one of the champions of the nascent slasher film genre, the reviews are meh. The scariest thing about this movie is that it was based on real events. It started on February 22nd, 1946. Jimmy Hollis, who was 25 at the time, and Mary Jean Larry, who was 19, had gone on a Friday night date to see a movie and then went to park on a local lover's lane. The term park grosses me out, and I think we've talked about that already. Mm -hmm. The couple were chatting innocently, I assume, because I've not been told otherwise about specific activities that they were doing, nor is it our concern. After about 10 minutes of whatever it was they were doing, a man walked up to the car, shining a flashlight inside, momentarily blinding the couple. He then held them at gunpoint and ordered them out of the vehicle. The man was wearing a white sack over his head with eye and mouth holes cut crudely into it. I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say. The assailant then told Hollis to remove his pants and then beat him about the head with his gun, cracking the young man's skull. He then told Mary Jean Larry to run. Larry tried to escape, but the assailant caught up with her, beating her as well and assaulting her. He then ran away when he saw the approaching headlights of a car. After the assault, Larry ran about a half mile to a nearby house. She woke the residents inside and phoned the police. Hollis had regained consciousness and had alerted a passing motorist as well. Larry was hospitalized overnight for a head wound. Hollis was hospitalized over several days to recover from multiple skull fractures. The couple had very different descriptions of the attacker, though. Law enforcement repeatedly challenged Larry's account and believed that she and maybe Hollis as well knew the identity of the attacker And that they were covering for him. What? Why? Okay. Why would you do that anyway? The investigation went nowhere. A month later, authorities found the bodies of 29-year-old Richard Griffin and 17-year-old Polly Ann Moore. The two had been on a date, having dinner with Griffin's sister, and then going to a well-known lover's lane. Both had been shot in the back of the head. Richard was found between the two front seats on his knees with his head in his hands. His pants pockets were inside out, thought, of course, to be the result of someone trying to rob him. Pollyann was discovered face down in the back seat of the car, though there was evidence that suggested she may have been murdered on a blanket outside the car and then put back inside the car. Though these were very similar crimes, separated by only a month, Many in the community believed these events to be isolated incidents.
1: I don't I don't understand the logic behind that. But I can't either. Because this is a small town.
2: It is a small town, but from what I've read, it wasn't a crime-free town. It wasn't oh. like these were the only incidents of crime. But maybe some of the more brutal. I would
1: think so. I would hope so.
2: April 14th. Now, this is, again, about a month later. Teenagers Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker were found dead in Spring Lake Park after a band performance at the Veterans of Foreign Wars Club, where Betty Jo had played saxophone. Their bodies had been pulled away from the car. Martin had been shot four times. Booker's body was found two miles from Martin's body. She was laying behind a tree on her back, fully clothed, posed with her right hand inside the pocket of her buttoned overcoat. Booker had been shot twice, once through the chest, once through the face. She was only 15 years old. Oh,
1: my God.
2: Now, in each of these incidents, a pistol was the weapon used. And they knew at the second two events, specifically, it had been a thirty-two. Police began patrolling secluded roads and lover's lanes. And after this last event, Texarkana was on high alert. People were buying weapons and booby-trapping their homes. The press was calling these incidents the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. But because the assailant seemed to strike and then vanish, he was also dubbed the Phantom Killer by a local newspaper. Which, again, neither of these, I think, really encapsulates what was really going on here. And I might suggest the Cowardly Baby Killer Mm, or something along those lines. Moonlight Killer
1: is just, uh, it's too romantic. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the Texarkana Baby Killer. Yeah.
2: No, I think Cowardly should be in there.
1: The Cowardly. Texarkana baby killer. Yeah. Okay, let's roll with that.
2: Theories were spreading about the identity of the Texarkana cowardly baby killer. The killer's targets of couples and lack of other identifiable motives led to the idea that he was some sort of sex maniac. Suspects were an escaped German prisoner of war, an L.A. resident who believed he may have committed the crimes while in a coma. Mm. One young man, a student of the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, who came from a prominent family, actually ended his own life leaving a confession, which turned out to be a false lead. Wow. Unclear if he was confused and thought he had actually done it. There was a bit of a frenzy going on. Despite the town actually seeming to take this seriously now, the town saw more violence. On Friday, May 3rd, sometime before 9 p.m., Virgil Starks, who was 37, and his wife Katie, 36, were in their home on a 500-acre farm off Highway 67 East. That's almost 10 miles northeast of Texarkana. Virgil was listening to the radio when a 22 caliber round tore through his front porch and hit him.
1: So if it's the same person, he's using different weaponry, different caliber revolvers or guns.
2: And a different M.O. He's going to someone's home. Hmm. Katie ran out to find out what was going on. She saw her husband stand up and then slump back into his chair and she realized he had passed. So she ran to a wall crank telephone to call police, but before the phone rang a third time, she was shot in the face. Katie then escaped out the front door Holy crap. and ran to a nearby farmhouse where she found a neighbor, A.V. Prater. Prater shot a rifle in the air to summon another neighbor who helped get Katie to a hospital where she was treated for two gunshot wounds to the face. Oh my God. And she survived. While, of course, this incident was blowing up the fear of the Texarkana cowardly baby killer, it's possible that this killing was done by someone else because, of course, we talked about the fact that the gun that was used was different, the fact that it was done at their home, and this couple was much older. They're a married couple. They're not like sneaking around or whatever.
1: Yeah, it makes very little sense.
2: Police tried baiting the killer by recruiting teenagers to sit as decor in parked cars while officers waited nearby. Officers volunteered as well to sit as decoys with real partners or sometimes mannequins. That's
1: pretty creepy imagery.
2: All on its own, yeah. All
1: on its own. No,
2: you're right. But no arrests were made. In June of that year, police arrested Yule Lee Swinney for stealing cars. But as they drove the 29-year-old to the police station, the man asked, Will they give me the chair? That led police to suspect that he had something else going on in his history. Usually, people weren't given the chair for stealing cars. Swinney's wife, Peggy, had said some incriminating things as well. But at the time, the law barred her from testifying against him because she's his wife. Right, right. And that's stupid. Mm. Also want to remind you that at this time, police kept challenging that first victim, Larry about whether or not she actually knew her assailant and was lying about it.
1: Well, those were different times.
2: Not helpful. No suspects are apprehended. But even though detectives lacked evidence strong enough to convict Swinney for murder, they did put him behind bars for car theft. He was jailed for life as a repeat offender, but ended up being released in 1973. Yule Swinney died in 1994, and no evidence has come out to prove prove whether or not he was actually the Texarkana cowardly baby killer. The lack of related murders after he was arrested kind of leads us to believe that he was, in fact, the murderer or that the real murderer saw that arrest as a way to dip and avoid continued suspicion. Though the town that dreaded Sundown is purported to be based on the story of the Texarkana cowardly moonlight murderer, many people dispute its accuracy. There was some artistic license taken, for sure. And the town of Texarkana shows that movie each Halloween in a park near one of the crime scenes. It's
1: like a big festival. I saw a documentary on that about how people come from all over the place to watch it's like a, they they run it at a drive-in or as you said like a park it's mm. an outdoor type of yeah. quote festival it, it just seems well bad form
2: insensitive tacky yeah yeah, yeah. Has,
1: has enough time gone by i don't think so no
2: like i get a cult film slasher film whatever and it's but it's Supposed to be based on real people whose families are still alive. I know. I, I don't know. know. I, just, I don't like it,
1: especially that fifteen-year-old kid that was that was killed. Right. You know that they've got siblings. Or, oh yeah. Yeah.
2: I got my information from Grunge, The Lineup, True Crime Never Sleeps, The Encyclopedia of Arkansas, and of course Wikipedia.
1: I think during that documentary that that I watched regarding the Texarkana Cowardly Baby Killer guy. Mm-hmm. They made reference to how that story, you know, the, lo- the Lover's Lane element of it, evolved into the urban legend about the guy the with hook.
2: the hook. Yep. Yeah. I read the same thing. Interesting. I meant to include that in the end, but I got lost in the mishandling of things and got angry. And it reminded me of Dahmer and Ugh. the Wisconsin police. Yeah. That just yeah. really. Yeah, uh, no,
1: they're just a couple of gay lovers. <sighs> yeah. Yeah.
2: Anyway, I, I do appreciate how you've just opted out. You're like, nope, I'm not watching this anymore. <laughs> yeah, I can't watch
1: Dahmer. No. I mean, you know, I, I don't know, there's just too many, too many levels of
2: Yeah, stuff. it's like a, a parfait of uncomfortableness. Oh my god.
1: Yeah. So And to, and to know that it, it all happened. It did. It's too much. Well, we made it through the episode and it actually uh, gosh, it looks like the rain has stopped a little bit right yeah. now. But I'm looking at the radar at the at the Doppler. If you will,
2: I wish you'd stop doing that.
1: Um, let me see here. Yeah, we're we're in a little white sp- white patch of uh, storm right now. You can see see that little white dot in the sea of orange. Oh yeah, yeah, that's where we are right now. <laughs> um, so we should probably wrap this up because things are going to get. A little rough, I think, in the next uh, few hours. Thanks for hanging out with us, you guys, and we look forward to seeing you next time.
2: Until then, keep flying that freak flag.
3: Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak.
2: But make sure that it's securely fastened.
3: And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. Theboxofaudities.com. On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Podcast. On Twitter at BoxOfOddities And Instagram at Box of Podcast. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.
2: in that old cotton field back home (laughs) nice thank you Mm -hmm. do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring well look no further and join me katie charlwood your friendly neighborhood
0: social scientist and reader of books as i delve into unsolved historical mysteries murders by gaslight and of course Women who have
3: been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
0: If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The Big Picture Questions and the Most Interesting Research in Science.